32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United Ireland. Sorry, my audio is a bit ropey this week. I am up in Donegal and I forgot a key cable to attack. To up attack. in the north of Ireland, Una, are you? Well, uh, anyway. Yes. This is very, this is, the geography is very um, uh, particular to our to our episode this week. Um, you know that every week. Because. Because. You know that every week in United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland, beyond the headlines, bringing smart people in out. They're talking about, and it's election season. We love a good vote. And next month, um, for the the next month, we'll be giving you the ultimate alternative Northern Irish Assembly election guide because the North goes to the polls on May 5th. And the Assembly elections, in our opinion, are chronically undercovered in the Republic. And as a result, a lot of people just don't really engage. They don't really know what the crack is with the Assembly. They don't understand the significance of this election in terms of Sinn Féin potentially being first ministers and the DUP trying to time travel and go back to uh, times of yore where they didn't have to power share in terms of um, just unionism in general being quite salty at the moment. Um, And so it's a really important and significant moment. but. People in the South, in shock development, do not seem to be engaged with what's happening in the North right now. Andrea, how do you feel about this election? Well, as I was preparing for this, it felt like I was doing a school project. Because so I was like, oh my God, bore off. Which is obviously devastating because, you know, I was about to say, well, it's my country, but that that. Drops a little bombshell in there, doesn't it? Um, so I just think there's so much going on in the world and that it kind of feels like, are we back here again? And not back here again, but like, okay, have your election. What does that have to do with me? And et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, it has a lot to do with me. Um, but I, I just don't know what the disconnect is. Why does it not click through that I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on in that election? I think it's because there's a, a sense in uh, assembly elections and the discourse around elections in the North that it's the same issues that on the same kind of context and the same political frameworks that are kind of going over the same old ground over and over again, uh, to quote Pink Floyd. Um, but so I think that basically people just get jaded and they switch off, which is why we are basically saying, no, this is actually interesting. It can actually be a bit of fun as well. And it isn't the same old shit that people have been talking about for years. Different things are happening. Different tectonic plates are moving. And so for the next four weeks on United Ireland, we are going to be talking to expert analysts. Anal- oh, Jesus analysts, God, what's wrong this morning, um, who, who are giving like really, really smart, big picture points of view. We're going to give you constituency profiles as well. Um, we're going to speak to some candidates beyond the usual heads that you're used to listening to. And we're going to dig into the issues <clears throat> that matter to people voting in the North and maybe not the ones that you think uh, would matter. Like we're not going to be tracing the same old uh, contours that people are very familiar with because there's loads of other stuff going on. And very excitingly, it's the return of Andrea's facts. While she may have framed very. 
as a as a boring school project at the top of this episode. <laughs> I really know how to sell it, don't I? <laughs> Who knows what nuggets of information she'll unearth in her dogged research down the libraries, uh, running through university campuses, gown flowing in the lab with her microscope, telescope, kaleidoscope. <laughs> Uh, Yes, no stone shall be left unturned in these election apps. On the first episode in this series, we're looking at the big picture. So this is introduction time. What is the significance of this election? What is unionism's big idea? And with Sinn Féin riding high, is everything about to change? We are going to be joined in this episode by the brilliant Susan McKay for this introduction to the Assembly election, The Big Picture. Okay, Andrea, considering the amazing work that we are doing on United Ireland, uh, on the award-winning United Ireland, uh, awards may have been given by ourselves, um, we wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for their support on Patreon. I know sometimes we phone this bit in or a bit crap uh, asking for your cash, but you make this podcast happen and every Patreon supporter that we have is fully responsible for this podcast existing. That kind of sounds a bit threatening. Cash on your shoulders, if you shall. (laughs) Your fault. Your monthly contribution, which we are so, so grateful for, goes towards guest fees, production costs, rewards, and helping us carve out the time to research, plan, and record this podcast, and pays for all of Andrea's time down the National Library, scouring the encyclopedias of her her people in politics. Wait till you hear my facts today. You're literally going to be, whoa, that was money well spent. Yeah. Um, you know, we're so joyous when people come up to us in pubs or clubs or on the street or whatever, uh, talking about the podcast, chatting about the episodes, um, naming your favorite episodes. And especially when you say you're a supporter, because it means so much to us and there's basically no way we'd be doing this without you. So thank you. You're all legends. Know that when you're supporting us on Patreon for as little as three euro a month, when you're listening to this episode right now on your headphones or in the kitchen, in your car, you are the reason this episode has been made. So if you want to be part of this United Ireland family, we can all kind of join hands together like kind of druids in Tara or old school paper doll uh, cutouts. Or before Madonna goes on stage. Mm. Um, it's just three euro a month. That's where it starts at. Major shout out to people who pay a higher tier. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland and pledge your allegiance to our flat no. Pledge your support to Divilment, alternative <laughs> media, independent broadcasting, and knowing that we get you and we know it's important to you. And we're glad that you're uh, making this podcast, basically, um, and supporting that and having all these guests and airing all these opinions. And we know, we're really happy that that's important to you too. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. We'd be so grateful if you signed up today. Now it's time for the State of the Nation. What's going on, Andrea? Well, Una, there's trouble abroad uh, for Tony H. He's off to Trinity, um, but it was uh, 
It was questioned why uh, the Department of Health are going to continue paying his 187000 salary while he'll be working for Trinity and why Trinity uh, won't be doing that. Now, there was a pushback saying that it will be up for the two organisations to discuss why that is happening. But because of the terms of the role, that it is um, a role that could go on forever and ever and ever. So the Department of Health could be uh, paying that 187000 a year for maybe 20 years. Um, so uh, it is maybe and uh, not necessarily a career move. It's more of a career addition. Mm. Um, um, so it will be interesting to see where that falls, to be honest. There's also trouble brewing in another part of the medical world, in the rotunda, right? Correct. Uh, Sean Daly became the first man to be the master of two maternity hospitals having left the uh, despite the fact that there were at least two really excellent female candidates who interviewed for the post and expressed their disappointment online. But then it was revealed that the interview panel had nine men and three women and that one of those men was the uh, outgoing master who was also Daly's business partner um, and the appointment was fast-tracked. Do, do, do. That, feels that feels like a great process. <laughs> <laughs> just non-opaque very clear very uh, fair god sometimes this country I mean come on um, anyway uh, cabinet has been told that Ireland's capacity to house Ukrainian refugees is being stretched to the limit uh, there are 580 refugees arriving every day um, 5,000 additional beds are going to be needed by next weekend. Um, and I guess this is what happens when there's no wiggle room or contingency when you have a housing crisis as chronic as ours. Um, and there's all this, you know, and, they talk about all the rapid build stuff. Like, oh, we can just build, do these rapid build modular temporary accommodation. Like shipping containers, transform and that kind of shit. Yeah, but like the, this... The rapid build stuff or modular homes or whatever have kind of come up repeatedly over the past decade as like, oh, this is a way you can solve the housing crisis or whatever. Or like we can just do these homes. But what has happened with them has been actually they've been re- like a lot of them have been really, really delayed in Dublin, like totally unrapid. And it kind of completely defeats the purpose because actually the thing about rapid build homes and all that kind of stuff it's actually about uh, utilities and infrastructure is the difficult part. So like there's often delays with like ESB connecting them or whatever. Um, so yeah, uh, difficult times. I had, I had a solution to the housing crisis and planning issues in Ireland. Hit me. Get ready. So I think whoever is shaping the, pla- the, the country should do a list of all the things we need and developers can come into that list and go, I'm going to build that. And then, so it's like, we need one hotel. We need three, uh, apartment blocks of this height. We need this, this, this. So you've set out exactly what you need. The developers can choose what they want and then everyone's happy. That's actually rather than really great. It's like a, it's like a Isn't it? Ireland snag list. Yeah, it's like, we need this. Do you want to build it? Cool, do it. As opposed to, we're going to build 300 student accommodations. Uh, we don't want that, though. And but then we want to build it. All like, no, that's not what we want. It's not what we need. It's not. Yeah, uh, Andrea, your approach is w- way better. 
Like, I can't believe it isn't the way it's done, to be honest. It's like, this is idiotic. Just whoever's in charge, say what we need. And then the people who build it, build it. Yeah, it's like the, it's like if you were, you know, if you're going shopping and you have a shopping list, right? And instead of that, what 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 you have is you go to the shop and there's all these people standing outside and they're like, I have 19 cans of pineapple rings. And the other person is like, I have 49 bags of mini Milky Ways. And you're like, well, I don't really want any of them. Is there any way that I could get one of the pineapple rings and two? They're like, no, no, no. We're going, this is what we have and this is what we're doing. And now all you people around here, you're going to have to just object to different bits and bobs. And then we'll end up with four cans of pineapple rings, 19 bags of mini Milky Ways. And actually all you came in for was bread. And you'd be like, well, I am hungry. So I do need some pineapples, perhaps. I can't believe we, Milky Ways and pineapples. That's the housing crisis summed up by Una and Andrea today. (laughs) Now. Let's go north. So as we've told you, this is the first in our month-long special, um, making the assembly elections vibe again. I don't know. We need to, okay, we're going to have to come up with a slogan there. Um, Andrew, actually, if you can think of a, a sexy um, Northern Irish Assembly sting, this would be a really good place to drop it in. I'll leave that one up to you. Uh, you guys carry on. Andrea and Una, making Northern Irish Assembly elections great again. Yeah, I think that one's taken. Um, okay, so, right, Andrea. The important thing is, is that anytime we go into these kind of explainer things or election mode or anything, it's all about your facts, right? And so we're going to kick off, before we talk to Susan McKay, we're going to kick off with Andrea's Assembly facts i'm gonna just sit back and take in your information uh considering that you've been paddington bear like running around the libraries uh trying to find um all the all the details of what's going on what is a northern irish assembly okay what is a northern irish assembly i am approaching this in don't you know the way when people are having conversations and everyone's like, yeah, it's a devolved government, yeah, the assembly, the executive. And you're like, yeah, yeah, Stormont, blah, blah. And I kind of nod along a lot of the time. And I'm just like, oh, I'm in an absolute rats what's going on, to be honest. And I don't know what any of that means. Now, I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably have a bit more um, uh, clued in than I am. But uh, get ready because I'm taking it down to basics and starting from the start. So, uh So this current Northern Irish Assembly was dissolved on the 28th of March, 2022, and the elections take place on the 5th of May. So that's that's what the state of the nation on that. Um, Now, this is not the first Northern Irish Assembly that's existed. Um, From June 1921 to March 1972, the Northern Irish Uh, was known as the Parliament of Northern Ireland and it was established by the Government of Ireland Act 1920. However, it was suspended by the UK government on the 30th of March 1972 and formally abolished in 1973 under the Northern Ireland Constitution Act 1973. And from there, um, it was uh, taken up by direct rule until 1999, with a brief exception in 1974. So that would be um, a lot of the trouble-causing shenanigans, you might say, 
that that direct rail caused. Um, so, uh, so Northern Irish Assembly Part One was established in 1973, um, but it was brought down in 1974 by the Workers' Council strike, um, which is the brief exception I spoke about there. Then the second Northern Irish Assembly Part Two was established in 1982. It wasn't supported by the Irish Nationalists, though, and it was dissolved in 1986. Um, so then we have two kind of years blowing in the breeze. And Assembly Part 3, which is the current one, was created in 1998 under the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, can you believe the Good Friday Agreement is that long ago? I know we had an, an anniversary, but it's just bananas. Um, so the first election took place in June 1998. And often when people talk about the Assembly and call it Stormont, which is where I get confused, that is because of its location in the Stormont Estate. Um but actually, the building's official title is, and this is the official like name of the building, it's called Parliament Building Walls and Lamp Standards. What? It's not exactly very catchy, is it? Stormont kind of makes a bit more sense. Yeah, the official name of that building, Parliament Building Walls and Lamp Standards. Bananas. That's, that's, I want a bit more of a reaction to that. It's bananas. So it is a devolved government, but what does devolved mean? So basically, that means that the power is shifted from a higher power down to a more local uh, thing, but they're still keeping the, the strings going to the higher power, which is Westminster. Uh, it's made up of 90 members known as MLAs, which are members, stands for members of the legis Legislative Assembly. And these MLAs, once they're elected, have the power to elect ministers who then make up the executive. So it's kind of similar to Dublin City Council in the way it's kind of run, assembled, so the correct? So the executive um, is the cabinet, basically. Yeah. So there are nine government departments, which are, uh, which is what the devolved assembly are allowed run. That is agriculture, environment and rural affairs is one. Communities, the economy, education, finance, health, infrastructure, justice and the first and deputy minister. Um, Westminster still retains power over issues the whole of the UK that affects the whole of the UK, such as foreign affairs, income tax, immigration policies. And these are known as reserved or accepted matters. Um, and there's absolutely loads of them. And things get a lot very messy when you start going into reserved and accepted matters um, and what is run by the government. And you only have to look at what's happened with uh, abortion rights in the in Northern Ireland, because a lot of the time the UK hold the power, but they kind of say, oh, well, that's a devolved matter. But then the devolved government don't have the, enough power to bring it in or to to legislate for it. And you just get stuck in this black hole or grey area, um, which is kind of where we are now. Power sharing is insure, insured uh, using the DeHunt method or the Jefferson method, which is named after Thomas Jefferson. And that ensures that it is an equal split between um, the part, the two kind of, uh, the two, what would you call them? Well, the two communities, opinions, I suppose, uh, yeah. Uh, it has 18 six-member constituencies 
Um, well, it had, um, as laid down in the Northern Ireland Act of 1998. That was reduced to five member constituencies, so the 18 five member constituencies in 2016, and that's made up of four borough constituencies in Belfast, which is Belfast East, North, South, and West. And then there's 14 county constituencies. Um, and interestingly, uh, the constituencies are used are the same as those used for elections in the UK Parliament at Westminster. Um, when it comes to local government, there's 11 district councils and they have different boundaries. So there's different boundaries used for those. Um, when uh, an MLA is elected, they ha are free to designate themselves as nationalist, unionist or other as they see fit. Um, now, there is a bit of pushback on that because that obviously leads to sectarian divisions and um, because you have to define yourself for what you are. There's no maybe wiggle room in there. Um, there are different parties who have held seats in the Assembly. From a unionist perspective, there are the Ulster Unionist Party, the Democratic Unionist Party, the Progressive Unionist Party, the UK Independence Party, the Traditional Unionist Voice, NI21, U United Unionist Coalition, the UK Unionist Party and the Northern Ireland Unionist Party. Uh, simpler in the nationalist world, they are the Social Democratic and Labour Party and Sinn Féin. And then there are others, including the Alliance Party of Northern Ireland, the Green Party of Northern Ireland, People Before Profit and the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. Uh, the Assembly, in its current uh, ruse, has been suspended five times from the 11th of February to the 30th of May 2000. Uh, in August 2001, there was a 24-hour suspension. 22nd of September 2001, there was a 24-hour suspension. October 2002 to 7th of May 2007. And then the 9th of January 2017 till the 11th of January 2020. And when it's suspended, nothing can happen. So, again, blowing in the breeze, no uh, legislation can be moved, all the kind of action that you need for a governing country. Um, then on the 3rd of February 2022, the First Minister, Paul Given, resigned. Um, and due to power sharing arrangements, that means the Deputy First Minister, Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill, lost her position, which kind of brings us to now. Andrea, I am just blown away by the clarity of your explanation there. I feel much more lucidly informed on the crack of it all. Do you think I did an A plus, an A plus in my school research project? And a gold star. Yes, thank God. Okay, <laughs> that was brilliant. So you know what's up with the actual assembly, what people are actually voting on, voting people into. And now let's talk to the great Susan McKay. Now, you all know that Susan McKay is a brilliant journalist, analyst and author. You'll know her from her fantastic writing as well as from a byline episode from a while ago where we discussed her excellent book, um, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground. Recently, she wrote a piece for The Guardian about how Northern Ireland, as we <coughs> know it, is coming to an end analysing the behaviour and mindset of contemporary unionism, which feels a lot like past tense unionism, and declared that the Northern Irish Assembly that um, wrapped previous to these uh, election, upcoming elections may be the final one for the foreseeable future. Um, it was a dramatic piece of analysis, but it kind of cuts to the core of a lot of the stuff that people are kind of dancing around. Um, Susan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Una. In your opinion, what is the significance of this election? Like, is it different to previous elections? And are like, because you're identifying more fundamental systemic 
change or lack of it that is kind of occurring. So what do you think is the significance of this one? Well, the first thing that needs to be said is that Brexit has completely destabilised Northern Ireland. And as a result of that, this is a very crucial election because in many ways it's a test of the survival of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, Increasingly, you're seeing um, the DUP, which is currently the the main unionist party, identifying with forces which are really a a kind of bigoted minority in a way. But the fact that the DUP is is identifying with them is giving them a voice. And these people went from being anti-protocol, which set up the border in the Irish Sea, as it's called, to being full-blown anti explicitly anti-Good Friday Agreement and anti-power sharing. So this, the reason why I think that this election may not lead to the formation of an assembly, and I'm by no means alone in saying that, is that the DUP hasn't said whether it would be willing to go into government with Sinn Féin again if Sinn Féin get the first ministry, which means that it's rejecting the Good Friday Agreement because that... Uh, joint role of First Minister and Deputy First Minister is fundamental and central to the agreement. Um, But also um, it's saying that it won't go back into power unless the protocol is resolved and it's telling its most hardline supporters, who are the people that it's most closely identifying with at the moment, that it won't go back unless the protocol is ditched. And there's no sign whatsoever that the protocol is going to be ditched. Um, It's not within the British government's power to ditch it. It's an international agreement that the British government has made uh, with the European Union. And of course, those who criticise the DUP on this say, well, actually, it was you who pushed and pushed for the hardest possible Brexit and therefore made the border in the Irish Sea inevitable. So the DUP is in quite a bad place and it's showing very poorly in the opinion polls. Um, the last On the last few polls, polls, Sinn Féin does look set to take the first ministry. It's soaring ahead uh, with the DUP coming in second and very interestingly, Alliance coming in third. Mm. For people who don't really know kind of the nuts and bolts of power sharing or how the top jobs are achieved within um, this kind of unique kind of um, electoral structure system, how, why is it so likely that, that Sinn Féin will be the first minister? Or hold that ministry? Because um, under the Good Friday Agreement and very specifically under the agreement that was brokered between Sinn Féin and the DUP as the St. Andrews Agreement, um, the executive office, which is the office of the first and deputy first ministers, can only be formed by the largest unionist and the largest nationalist party. Uh, So that means that they have to agree to enter that joint office as first and deputy first minister. So as I've said, the DUP is throwing doubt over whether it would be willing to accept a Sinn Féin first minister. Um, And so and and there's also the not probably in this election, but it is potentially possible that um, you could get a non Uh, nationalist, non-unionist party or bloc emerging that could potentially say, well, we want the first or deputy first ministership. But under the Good Friday Agreement, that's not actually possible. And that's why the Alliance Party has been arguing for a long time now that we need reform of the way that the um, top offices, the the, the formation of of an assembly and an executive are are designed because um, at the moment, if the DUP refuses to go back into government, there won't be a government. Uh, Similarly, in 2017, when Sinn Féin pulled out of government, 
the, exec, the executive collapsed and there was no government for three years. So what Alliance and others are saying is we need a system whereby if a party pulls out of the top office, uh, they go into opposition and the parties that are willing to form a coalition go ahead and govern. Mm. But at the moment, there's such a cantankerous, uh, poisonous sort of atmosphere that the chances of, of being able to negotiate um, a new way of, of structuring um, the institutions at Stormont would be very, very poor. I mean, elections always bring out the worst in the North, but this this year is particularly bad-tempered. In terms of power sharing and uh, unionism or the DUP more specifically, is it the case that, well, it kind of feels like to me from afar that power sharing only seems to suit the DUP <laughs> if they have a, a version or even a feeling of the lion's share of power. And then when that equalizes, then they're, they're just not interested. So it's kind of quite a you know, cynical attitude, I guess, towards power sharing. Is that, would that be right? Well, it's an anti-democratic attitude uh, towards government. Um, You can't say, well, I agree with the system so long as I come out on top, but I don't agree with it if I don't. You know, that's just so childish. Um, But I think that people need to start looking at the DUP and thinking in terms of, you know, they're, they're still using the kind of language of dominance and of, of arrogance that characterised unionist regimes in the pre-Good Friday Agreement, pre, pre-1973 period. Um, but it's now more smacks of desperation because they're not the top dog anymore. Um, the, you know, the, there'll be a new census out this year which shows that you know, unionism is no longer in a majority, probably in most age groups, even at the moment, it's um, it's only a majority, Protestants are only a majority in the over 60s. So the population is now much more equalised and also the population has changed um, so much. People are no longer so strictly defined by the notion of whether you're pro the UK or pro United Ireland. And I might just here quote the late Lyra McKee, whose anniversary is coming up very shortly. Um, she said, um, she was talking about her generation and she said, um, I don't care about a united Ireland. I don't want a stronger union. I just want a better life. And there's some, a very high percentage of Northern people don't vote or else. And if you combine that with the number of people who vote for parties that are not nationalist or not unionist, it goes up even higher. So those are the people who will determine the outcome of of future elections and the DUP's old style thing of appealing to people to vote unionist because otherwise you'll get nationalist. It doesn't really work Mm. so anymore, but that seems to be the only card that the DUP is playing at the moment. So this their position and and a, a lack of confidence this cuts to the heart of um, the binary diffusing or fragmenting in some ways, the traditional binary um, of those kind of the polarised identity politics that have governed um, politics in the North and society and, and, and so on and conflict as well. And everybody, I think, agrees that that Good Friday Agreement should be adhered to. And, and you know, many see it as kind of sacrosanct. And on one hand, you have kind of fundamentalist unionists um, in the DUP who 
don't really seem to hold that opinion or, 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 or see it as something that can be molded to suit their agendas. But at the same time, is there not an issue within the Good Friday Agreement with regards to it uh, existing and being agreed upon in a particular time and a particular context? And that adherence to those binaries of nationalism and unionism is actually a, a, a little bit as we, uh, you know, kind of when we move later into the future is kind of a flaw in there because it does bind something that does not allow for whatever you want to call it, like middle ground or more complex identities or ones that are not rooted to those green and orange poles. Yeah, that is true. Uh, the, the thing about the Good Friday Agreement was that it was essentially a peace settlement. It succeeded in bringing an end to 30 years of violence and conflict. Um, but it was it had elements. A lot of the Good Friday Agreement has never been implemented. Mm. Most of the human rights provisions and there's not been very much work done at government level on reconciliation. So I, I think of it as being like, you know, one of those trees that gets put up in a park in a rough area, you know, and they put a sort of little fence around it and stuff to try and keep it safe until it grows strong enough to survive on its own. But in in the case of the Good Friday Agreement, that it has never been allowed, it's never been nurtured enough to, to outgrow its scaffolding. So, you know, by now we should it should have developed into a much more relaxed form of government, which really reflects the, the demands and needs of the people. But it hasn't. It's stuck in the binary and it isn't appropriate any longer. I mean, the third, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the polls are showing that the Alliance Party is likely to come in um, as the third largest party. And the Alliance Party doesn't even designate as being either unionist or nationalist, but it does contain people from both backgrounds. Um, you've also got the Green Party growing in the north that's got a very strong female leader um, uh, in Clare Bailey. And you've got people before profit growing. You know, you've got um, just other parties that are picking up, up seats or picking up, picking up support. We can't say yet the extent to which they'll pick up seats because, unfortunately, in Northern Ireland's elections, people do often panic at the last minute and, and vote for the unionist or vote for the nationalist. So the constitutional question has a way of making itself to the top. And I would certainly be among uh, the people who have come around to feeling that Northern Ireland just can't work. Um, you know, unionism seems to have never got beyond the notion that what they need is back to the old days. You know, the really good old days when there wasn't a threat to their dominance, there wasn't any question about this nonsense of power sharing or human rights or any of that stuff, you know. And so I've I've come around and I think a lot of other people have as well to just feeling that we are going to need to start looking at some form of unification of this island in which everybody, including unionists, have a right to their identity and have a right to their um, their self-definition in whatever way they want, but that they can't have dominance over others. But there, I think it's important to say that the um, people in the Republic and politicians in the Republic and the Irish Republic's government really need to step up. Mm. They, they really need to sort of enter fully into this debate because it is a coming debate in the North. It's being talked about quite a lot in the North. And there's been a poll the other day which showed that um, 
30% of the people in the North would go for a United Ireland tomorrow if there was a poll, uh, which obviously unionists are seizing upon us saying, well, there you are, 45% want to continue in the United Kingdom. But the thing is, everybody knows since Brexit that those kind of polls that are just suddenly visited upon people without proper preparation are a disaster. So a lot of people probably with a structured debate, uh, with perhaps citizens' assemblies or other ways of of forming public debates in a non-confrontational way, they might change their mind. And um, the um, very smart uh, David McCann, who's a kind of expert on elections in the North, has talked about how, you know, in, in many ways, the people who care the least about the constitutional position are actually the people who hold the key to um, what the future of the constitution or the border in Ireland actually uh, lie? Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you, yeah, like that's that just makes so much sense because um, you then almost remove the tracks upon which these debates or arguments have already have always um, been running upon. So getting the getting a different kind of rail to go along makes more sense. Yeah, I think people people don't want a lot of unionists and I understand this quail at the prospect of, you know, sort of, you know, you see Jerry Adams coming out and saying that, you know, the, the border poll is upon us and, you know, it's going to be a great victory and so on. And you just I just kind of wish like just go away. Yeah. You, know, you cannot expect people who are not uh, traditional Irish Republicans to to warm to a theme of Chucky R Law, you know, it's just not not realistic, and it's a very very bad strategy for Republicans to follow. That you know, there really has to be a very very clear message sent out that in a united Ireland, um, unionism is not going to be treated the way that nationalists were treated in the in the north in its in its um, the period from 1921 to. Uh, the eruption of the civil rights movement in 1963. Mm, I remember writing ages ago that the best way for Sinn Féin to realise their dream is to just get out of the discourse on it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, I think that one of the most interesting contributions to this debate has has been Patrick Keelty's. And Patrick Keelty is, of course, known as a comedian, but also as a man who, who has been very dignified in the face of the, fa- the fact that his father was murdered by loyalists in, in the north in County Down, where they lived. And he said, you know, it's about being able to sing the rebel song, but not singing it. Mm. You know, and I think it is like that. People need to sort of step back and realise, you know, it's all very well feeling triumphalist if you want to. It's all very well talking among yourselves about how you've won and so on, but you're not going to to win if you don't cajole and win over uh, people who don't share that uh, original Republican view. And I've always, I've been saying for a long time that I think that Republicans really need to recognise the extent to which they've wounded unionist people by the violence of um, the IRA and it's no good just saying yes but we had the British army against us and we had the loyalist paramilitaries we know that that was recognized in the Good Friday Agreement but we really need to get past that Mm. and the, the thing is Una as well that really the 
everybody, I think, even the DUP and Sinn Féin alike are, are having to um, recognise, and you're seeing it in the past few days in the statements that they're making, that people are really, really worried in the North about the state of the health service. And they're really, really worried about the growth in extreme poverty. You know, the word destitution is being used you know, horrific stories coming out about people who are literally not able to afford to both eat and heat their houses in the winter, you know, this kind of thing. And um, that's what people are talking about. They're talking about rising fuel costs when already they can't afford to to, to pay. And um, they're talking about the health service. I mean, we're used to having a broken down health service in the Republic. It's one of the main ways in which the Irish government could make a United Ireland attractive is if it created a, a first-class health service, a, a world-class health service. But, you know, I, I heard someone on the radio just yesterday in, in the North uh, talking about how they, they had, you know, a, a life-threatening, an imminently life-threatening heart condition, and they'd been waiting for over a year for an emergency operation. You know, that that in terms of the NHS and the NHS's ambitions to provide free health care for all is really shocking. Mm. Um, you know, it is the health, the NHS is one of the reasons many people give for wanting to stay in the UK. People in the North are horrified at the notion that you have to fork out 50 or 60 quid to go and see a doctor because you've got a cold or because your child is coughing or something. But the reality is the NHS is really in serious trouble in the North. And um, the fact that the DUP pulled out of government recently means that there's no budget for the health service. So let's talk about those other big electoral issues that are that are coming up. I mean, you mentioned health there, you know, which is acute and, you know, as a as an election issue. I mean, pretty much everywhere often, you know, and um, what other big electoral issues are, are kind of um, coming up that we may not think of, you know, leaving aside the the these these existential kind of power struggles? Um, well, the top ones are health and cost of living ones. Um, there's also regional issues like in, there's a growing uh, sort of lobby of people who are saying, look, the northwest of the north has been seriously neglected over the years. And it's kind of extraordinary that um, we're just celebrating the, the uh, opening of a new stretch of a dual carriageway between Belfast and Derry, the second city, <laughs> you know, all these years after the Good Friday Agreement. I find it hard to imagine that, you know, Martin McGuinness from Derry was for so long the Deputy First Minister and, and they didn't succeed in, in getting a proper road built between Belfast and Derry. Um, and it's not even finished yet. Um, Derry doesn't have a university all these years after the controversy about McGee not of the university being situated in Protestant Coleraine rather than Catholic Derry, you know. Um, so the Northwest is is looking for investment. Um, there's no the, there's ra- no rail service to the Northwest um, at all, other than a very slow, beautiful train line to Derry, which is gorgeous if you're not in a hurry, but uh, not great otherwise. So there's there's regional issues like that, but I think really poverty and the health service are are the main ones. Interestingly, the protocol which the DUP is making its headline issue uh, doesn't rate very highly as as one of the top issues. And in fact, a lot of nationalist politicians and non-unionist politicians are saying, look, actually, 
protocol has its problems, but it is kind of working for Northern Ireland. I mean, Northern Ireland doesn't have the um, same damage uh, that Brexit is doing to the wider UK economy. And that's because we have increased our um, relationship, trading relationships with the Republic of Ireland and with Europe. And actually, that's something that needs to be mentioned in relation to United Ireland. It is now, United Ireland is now seen by many people who wouldn't have been traditional Republicans as a way of getting back into the European Union. You know, it's it's seen in that way as a sort of anti-Brexit thing or an escape from Brexit. And are there any kind of optimistic or positive aspects emerging from this election that you're seeing, like interesting new candidates or different kind of pathways being identified towards kind of the future in a, in a less fractious way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in many ways, I think the North is in a really, really good place at the moment. Um, there's a much more of a sense of, of vibrancy and optimism in many ways in um, the likes of Belfast at the moment than, than I sense in the Republic. Um, if you look at the, the bills that got through um, after the DUP had collapsed the executive, a certain amount of legislation got through that had been advanced before the collapse, uh, so therefore didn't need to be signed off by the first and deputy first ministers. And you had things like um, a bill to stop women being harassed as they go for uh, abortion information at healthcare clinics, because that, that has been going on in the North as it has been going on in the Republic. Um, there was a bill to uh, enable women to have paid leave if they were trying to escape from an abusive relationship. Uh, there was a piece of legislation about providing period products in public buildings, you know, things that a lot of people would regard as being relatively small, but at the same time, they're kind of symbolic just in terms of that there are now thoughtful politicians, most of them women, but not all, who are uh, actually doing things to, to recognise that public space in the North has been very masculine and has been very much predicated on the notion of, of women being elsewhere. So the North is really changing in many ways. And there's a very strong uh, human rights uh, movement in the North with lots of NGOs, but also a human rights commission. We've got all kinds of um, ways in which equality can be can be monitored. So in many ways, uh, there is a, there is a prospect of the North being a decent place, but it is being held back by the old binaries and by panic among unionists about um, facing the fact that their politics is now outmoded and that a politics based on fear is not ever going to uh, create um, a government that the majority of people in Northern Ireland are going to be happy to live in, live with. Um, that piece that you wrote about, uh, well, I think the headline of it was the end of Northern Ireland is now or something, the piece that you wrote for The Guardian. Um, <coughs> it was hugely uh, read, very widely read, hugely you know, shared online and all that kind of stuff. But I did notice that when I committed to the mere act of retweeting it, um, you know, is getting this kind of bar barrage of attacks aimed at, aimed at you and your analysis and that kind of stuff. Um, it's a different context um, reporting on and in the North than in the South. 
Mm. What was the reaction to that piece um, from from your own point of view? And, and what do you think that that says about pushback or uh, panic, as you say, which I think is a great word to, to sum up um, the mindset in, in unionism <coughs> at the moment? Well, as you know, I'm sure yourself, it's not very nice being on the receiving end of that kind of crap. But um, it is crap and it's being published online by uh, a small cohort of extremely narrow-minded and bigoted people whose idea of the future is just to plunge right back down into the past, into the days of the Special Powers Act and, you know, no Catholics need apply and all the rest of it. Um, So they're not a group of people whose favour I would actually like to have. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they are they are quite um, menacing. And the most dismaying thing, as I've written about as well, is the fact that the DUP, Jeffrey Donaldson, has been courting those people. He seems to have decided that the, the group of voters that he wants to capture are those people, you know, the people who think that this whole power sharing lark just hasn't worked and let's just get rid of it and go back to the way things were, which is an absolutely hopeless politics and it's never going to work. It's never going to be tolerated by sensible people from any kind of background in the North or elsewhere, for that matter, because the Good Friday Agreement is an international treaty. It's, you know, it's being, it's Joe Biden in the States as it has been clear that the US is not going to allow uh, Northern Ireland to slip backwards. Uh, the European Union was very strong in its support Uh, for the Good Friday Agreement during the Brexit negotiations. So those people represent a kind of a hopeless politics, but they are kind of around the fringes of them are people who have made it clear that they would be quite happy to see a return to violence. And that is why it's so irresponsible of uh, Jeffrey Donaldson to be kind of being seen to associate with those people. Um, And I don't think it's going to work for him. He'll, He'll probably mop up that vote but I think that um, there are now other options for voters who may be unionist, uh, but don't want to be associated with with that kind of um, rather dangerous negativity. Mm. I mean, it's just not a good idea in a volatile place like Northern Ireland to start sort of um, othering people and, you know, calling people names and, you know, putting them putting them in a position where they feel uneasy or unsafe. You know, it's it's not um, it's irresponsible. I guess the worry is the further people's tactics fail, and the further they're courting essentially, you know, fundamentalist, violent, right wing, regressive entities, and the more their uh, way path forward is like a U turn the more backed into a corner people become, that's when you might get really stupid, even more inflammatory um, discourse and, and actions. It, it doesn't seem to me that the DUP is really saving itself from that inevitability. Um, no, but the thing is that the DUP aren't the people you'd worry about in that scenario. The people yeah. you worry about are the people who are being... You know, you've got people now who are sort of, you know, saying, oh, well, the reason why the um, the media says we're uh, bigots is because the media is anti-Protestant. And, the, you know, 
journalists like myself are now regarded as, uh, what's the term that's used, uh, pro-nationalist activists, anti-unionist activists, um, judges who make decisions like the recent one, which said that the protocol uh, doesn't breach um, the law and that, in fact, those who try to not implement it are, are liable to be breaching the law. Uh, there, it, 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 It's pointed out that, oh, they, I think your man's a Catholic or I think your woman has a record of being pro-nationalist and this kind of nonsense. But it's not taking off with people. Mm. You know, I, I really don't feel that um, we are at risk of a majority of people in the North ever wanting a return to violence. And I, I would say as well, I feel that there are parts of the media in the Republic that are too listening too keenly to that minority of loyalist voices and right. are kind of giving headlines to them, um, you know, because I remember from the period after the Good Friday Agreement in the North, there were all these old boyos from Portadown who had been stalwarts of the Drum Cree protests who were out sort of threatening Armageddon and they were going to bomb Dublin and they were going to collapse the sky in the North and you know, tear people's heads off along the border and a lot of extremely violent nonsense. And of course they didn't have the capacity and they don't have the capacity now. My sense is that even among the people who used to be loyalist paramilitaries, there's no appetite for a return to conflict. Um, we know now that the loyalist paramilitaries were heavily backed by elements of the British security services. And I don't see any benefit for the British in backing that again. You know, there's nothing in it for them now. They saw the loyalist paramilitaries as a, as a sort of helping hand to defeat the IRA. But there's no, there's an absolutely no indication of a return to Republican violence. So what would be the British interest in backing loyalist paramilitaries? You know, and also, who are the loyalist paramilitaries going to fight? You know, people don't want them to start going out killing Catholics. Um, the vast majority of Protestants are as horrified by that prospect as anybody. And um, so, so what's this about? It's just about sort of posturing in a in a violent fashion, but it's not got support, and and they don't have capacity. Mm. They keep on telling people that they have all these heavily armed. Uh, eager young men who can't wait to get out there and start fighting again, but they don't. They don't. And who are they going to fight? They haven't clarified who that's going to be. Mm. I think your dad, right? Media focuses too much on um, kind of extremist voices, almost even within parties themselves, that every time there's a discussion on unionism, for example, um, it's always somebody with a very, you know, a, a very kind of DUP position on it. And like, how representative <laughs> is that anymore? And how useful is that for the debate to be, or quote unquote, debate, any debate to be framed in that way? Um, well, it, the it, thing is, you, you have to distinguish between people who vote for the DUP. A majority of them don't support that kind of position either, but they're not being offered a unionist uh, politics by the DUP, which is in any way progressive. I mean, when I was writing my last book in 2019-2020, going into 2021, uh, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground, um, I found that there were quite a lot of 
people within the DUP who had a completely calm attitude towards the future, you know, and, and who were even willing to contemplate a border poll because they were just sort of saying, well, yeah, I mean, I don't mind a border poll. I'm going to vote to stay in the UK, but why would I be afraid of democracy? So in many ways, the DUP's lead, the way the, that Jeffrey Donaldson has led the DUP doesn't represent uh, those people. But on the other hand, if they're unionist, he's counting on them panicking into thinking, well, I'd better vote for the DUP anyway because they are the biggest unionist party. So you've got the Ulster Unionist Party, which has had something of a revival uh, under the leadership of Doug Beattie, albeit with a few setbacks along the way, but he is standing against that, that kind of extremism to an extent. Uh, to a good extent, actually, to be fair to the man, um, he hasn't actually come out and said that he definitely would take the deputy first ministership if he if his party became the largest unionist party. Um, but since that's not likely to happen, we don't really need to focus too strongly on that. But um, you've also got the Alliance Party, which has got quite a lot of unionists voting for it. And you've got a lot of unionists who just feel, well, I'm just not going to vote at all because right. I identify with that kind of politics. But I don't think that people should, I mean, the DUP will probably come in as the biggest unionist party again. It's more than likely that they will. Um, they might even do better than the opinion polls are showing. But I don't think that that means that everybody who votes DUP supports um, the more extremist sort of element that Jeffrey Donaldson has been, has been identifying the party with recently. I think it's more that he will have succeeded in stirring up a degree of panic about the notion that, you know, um, the end is nigh. So before you go, um, I know kind of predicting the future is a bit of a mug's game, but what's going to happen in the election? <laughs> what's gonna, what, what do you think the likely outcome is? I think the likely outcome is that Sinn Féin will come in as the biggest party and will therefore be entitled to take the first ministry. Um, I think that the DUP has no intention of going straight back into government in that situation. I think that they will use the protocol argument as a fig leaf for their refusal to take the deputy first ministership. And I think we'll be into another period without a government. And I think that's not a good thing coming into a summer in Northern Ireland, which is traditionally the time of volatility and of loud, angry voices. So I think that the immediate future is, is unattractive in, in terms of um, the outcome of this election. Susan McKay, thank you so much uh, for joining us, for your expertise. Much appreciated. Thanks, Una. Andrea, as we traverse the choppy waters uh, of this time, what is getting in the sea? So this week, Zelensky, Ukrainian leader, made an address to the Irish doll. Afterwards, uh, it was written about who clapped and who didn't clap at his address. And. Um, it just feels very childish um, that we are go like the seriousness of what is going on and that it's highlighting, well, this person didn't clap. Now, uh, the four people were the people before profit, uh, 
ministers. Um, and afterwards, Paul Murphy did an explainer on why they didn't. And he's like, we can't applaud calls for more sanctions, which are hurting ordinary Russians and only bolstering the Putin regime at home. And then Simon Coveney has come out and uh, given out about people who didn't clap. And you just feel like the significance that's been given to clapping and not clapping is really irrelevant when what is actually going on. Um, and I think it is very easy to understand where, not easy to understand. I think it's very easy to get your head around the fact that nobody wants to be applauding anything to do with war. And I know that Ukrainian Ukraine has been invaded and there seems to be a podium uh, that uh, Zelensky has been put on as he has uh, he has led um, the the country uh, uh, I suppose revolt back uh, really well but it does feel like he's being kind of given a sainthood almost and I feel uneasy about that a little bit I have to say and I understand that it's you can appreciate the good job he's doing, um, but I just feel like it's just so. I just I'm so abhorred by war, and I understand why you wouldn't want to be clapping for war in any capacity, and to make a big deal about that, I feel like it's so childish, and oh, I just it just wears me out, and I just think it's it can absolutely get in the sea. Yeah, I actually agree with you there, Andrea, because like first of all, you know big picture, small picture. I think the reaction to it by other politicians really speaks to the kind of juvenile school culture that exists in the law and that like this is important to them and literally to nobody else. And it's just like some chatter at lunchtime out in the playground. And, um, you know, I guess if I saw Zelensky speak, uh, I would applaud him after it. If people choose not to do that, guess what? democracy you know it's a democratic parliament and people can react um how how, how they want don't necessarily well whether you agree with it or not it's like it doesn't matter um so yeah i think it was just like real just real superficial like and always trying to like attack attack actually left-wing um for the most part uh TDs in this real superficial way like oh you didn't clap it's like okay you made a housing crisis you know, like, anyway. And it doesn't have to be tit for tat, but like, it's literally like, well, you put your hand up in the air and I didn't. And like, like, like making things, giving, assigning things meaning that don't necessarily have any meaning. It just seems meaningless. Now it's time for It's Bananas. on the theme of people before profit as it happens uh i just love the fact that bella hadid is getting all up in the people before profit uh supporting regime and uh like sharing richard boyd barrett's instagram and i think now this is going to sound superficial come at me who cares 
people before profit I think are a lovely party but Bella Hadid really brings the glam and I think that might have been what was missing like you've got it it brings Huns and a different audience to people before profit and their and their what their morals and stances are and you know what I don't think that's ever a bad thing as I've always said with Hunreal issues and anything we do the more people that get in in any capacity and if it's in a different way and maybe not in an academic way or maybe not in a really serious way but bringing more people to the table of uh, things that affect them and their lives is always a good thing so I think it's absolutely bananas that Bella Hadid is getting all up in people before profit but I am here for it. Excellent and now it's time for our fave bits. Our fave bits. Uh, I will go with my fave bits first. Firstly, now, I am kind of uh, taking this fave bit, but it all stemmed from Una, who introduced me to this fave bit. And anyone who listens to our Sunday Soothe will know that uh, we are big fans of Beverly Glenn Copeland and have used uh, their music a number of times as the soother on the Sunday Soothe. Uh, and they have been announced for all together now. And that I was the lineup is phenomenal. Um, there's so many good lineups. I think we are very spoiled for lineups uh, in Ireland this summer. Now, the only thing is it feels like everyone's blown their beans and making these mad and fab announcements. And they're all in the same month, like f- week after each other. It's like, I am absolutely not in a machine and I will not be able to do that. And I think that's going to like, and I think it is already affecting ticket sales for acts because we haven't been able to have anything for so long. Everyone just announced everything all in one go. And obviously I'm not one to be saying that like, I want less choice or less gigs or less clubs or whatever, but I just worry about the, uh, how that's going to affect ticket sales and, and whatever. But anyway, side note, um, so yeah, Beverly Glenn Copeland at All Together Now. Definitely going to go down and see that. I'm off the booze at the moment, so I'm literally not, not getting into festy vibes. But that's the perfect little thing you could make a little outing for and and stay on the dry. And like, obviously you can do that anytime, but like that gives me a reason. Anyway, side note of life. Uh, my second fave bit is Coddle Mania. Now I don't want to over... Um, egg coddle god forbid I would ever do such a thing but I've been I've been getting into coddle a good bit uh, anyone who follows me on Instagram or may listen to this podcast or actually messaging me ever knows that I talk about coddle a lot I'm in a lot of coddle groups I had a coddle dinner party um, it's going down but the best thing and I know this is all about like where you put your energy and your uh your kind of uh what's it called your I think I still have COVID brain because I can't remember any words I never can anyway but your attention goes to and the amount of people that are posting coddle like even the other day there was a gorgeous coddle posted in Devitt's um on Camden Street coddle is on the up it is just phenomenal to see it um and if you haven't had it and are just like it's disgusting shut up and try it and because it's delicious uh, another fave bit I 
don't really watch things very often, but I love Bridgerton. It is lovely escapism. It is gorgeous. It's beautifully shot. The colors are stunning. The love story runs through it. My favorite thing. There's no real violence. Nobody gets murdered. It just is what we should all be like aiming for. Beautiful dresses, parties all the time. Uh, okay, maybe there's a bit of few issues that need to be unfolded in terms of like marriages based on uh on your standing in society rather than love but look in the end it all worked out it was all about love and I think that's my utopia that I'm aiming for so thank you Bridgerton for creating that utopia and finally my favorite this is kind of uh maybe a little bit left of center for a current affairs slash political podcast but living in oblivion there is a lot to be said for it I have literally not been on twitter I haven't read any news. I literally have been living in my own little life. And I'm. it just makes you very happy when you don't know anything that's going on. And there's a lot to be said for it. And uh, yeah, there you go. So maybe just don't tune into anything and don't listen to anything. Cool. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I'm developing this, I'm kind of working on this essay at the moment. That's about how the age of attention and the age of spotlight and stuff is gone, you know, and and so people are actually uh, much more inclined to not, um, not, not, not engage in, in, in the ways that we used to. Um, Great. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, well, these are my fave bits now and, and actually uh, part of it is, is kind of, on the back of um, the Andy Warhol Diaries um, documentary on, on Netflix, <clears throat> which I'm really enjoying, there's apart from the amount of time it wastes on trying to figure out who or who he wasn't ha- having sex with and what what was that sex. And, you know, well, you know, he was in a relationship with John Gold, but maybe this, that, and the, I'm just like, I don't actually care. Like, and I just find that that's kind of annoyed me about the documentary series. Um, like everybody knows that Andy Warhol was gay and queer and like, I, d- I just don't really, really care about the intricacies of his sexual life. I care about the art and his impact and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, maybe you need to read people magazine a bit more to care. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I just like, I feel like myself and Sarah were talking about it and we were like, I feel like if it was a lesbian or queer female artist, it would just be like, yeah. And then they were in a relationship with these people and like, who knows what happened, but that's just what they're up to. But meanwhile, their paintings, you know, it's kind of like, I think there's a different, there's a different attitude when it, when programming is being made by gay men about gay men, obviously Ryan Murphy, exact produced to this and we anyway we all know my opinions on Ryan Murphy okay um but I find it really interesting that just that the obviously like you know that era of uh, or kind of long era in terms of fame and being pop and being part of the mainstream that was such a like desirable thing for even avant-garde artists or, or fringe artists or artists who came from the underground uh, like Basquiat, like uh, Keith Haring and so on. And 
it's so stark really when you look at contemporary culture because like people will say this stuff oh you know what would Warhol have said about Instagram and blah 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 and it's like it just really brings home to me that I feel like the age of attention seeking is just gone and I feel like that the reason being is because back in the day fame and a position of fame and being in the spotlight was actually the exception, right? It was the thing that was unusual or elevated Mm. amongst the masses that somebody would actually be famous or be known uh, and have their life kind of talked about, commented about and all that kind of stuff. But now what you have is, is, is being public, being, you know, quote unquote famous in whatever kind of micro way is actually the norm. And so therefore to be outside of that or to be kind of, different or elevated or in a weird way, like an inverted fame in contemporary society is actually about being outside of the spotlight and being mysterious, having a sense of mystique or being anonymous or all that kind of stuff. So I feel like there's much more intrigue and gravitas and social capital to be gained from people actually not being uh, on, you know, on stage in, in a digital way or in public, public kind of public forums um, or, or just like society in general. And I think that's why you see like, you know, the, the, the bigger the celebrity or the more fascinated people are by a particular celebrity in con- the contemporary era, the less likely they are to be um, very, very public and out there. And I think that's how fame has become inverted. That fame now is actually about not being seen, whereas previously it was about being seen. I mean, I'll put it all in the essay and nine people will read it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, watch the Annie World Diaries if you haven't watched them on Netflix. This is really interesting. Um, Pillow Queens, leave the light on. Their record came out last week. J'adore. I like this album is fascinating to me because it's so growy. Like the more and more I listen to it, it just kind of reveals itself more and more, and it's um in its kind of abstractions and in its depth. Uh, and in its 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 nuance and how um, I don't know it's just really a, a massive evolution from in waiting so I love that. Um, did I talk about the film Zola already last week? Maybe not. No, um, I watched Zola. Fab. Maybe I did talk about it. Um, it's a really really fun film that was actually adapted from a Twitter thread <laughs> about. Um, a crazy adventure that these uh, two strippers got up to and the film's just gas it's the film directorially is just like packed full of ideas actually the director has directed some of uh, Atlanta one of my favorite television shows so it is if you're looking for a total like if you do not want to watch the power of the dog and want to watch something that's like full-on gas adventure craziness um then this is the film for you. Uh, I also watched Boiling Point, which is on Netflix. Zola, I think, rented that from Apple TV. Boiling Point is on Netflix. It's a one-take. There's been lots of one-take films recently, I think kind of on the back of Victoria, that um, Berlin, that film shot in Berlin a few years ago. And then there was obviously uh, Night Ride as well. But Boiling Point is a one-take film set over one evening in a restaurant uh, kitchen and the very, very high levels of stress uh, that ensue. And it works quite well. I mean, at the start of it, I was like, oh, some of the little interactions or the acting is a little bit off, but then you just totally get into it. And there are just some amazing 
kind of standalone, almost vignettes in it uh, when the camera never breaks shot. So check that out. Um, happy 10 year anniversary to Pop Baby. It is 10 years since Alice in Wonderland stormed the stage of the Abbey, ushering a new era of theatre in and creativity in and a massive generational shift in Irish art as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, wow, 10 years, holy moly. Uh, last week, our episode of Byline was with Simon Carswell. If you haven't listened to that, do it. Very interesting, especially on the pandemic reporting. Um, my other fave bits, Mango Mathman are at the Academy next Friday. Turn your good Friday into a great Friday. Um, with the Quiet Life Tour, I'm going to be there having the lulls. Are you going, Andrea? Uh, I don't think so, no. Oh, right, okay. Well, that was... <laughs> I'm living in oblivion. Maybe you can twist your arm. And my final fave bit is, I just, I just can't, like, first of all, of course, Andrea, you and Colm uh, from Daddy's were on it this week. It is James Kavanagh's podcast. Like, first of all, it's just so, <clears throat> it's so funny. It's so lovely. It's a great escape. Um, shout out to Blur's seminal album. Uh, and it is just a really interesting gas listen. And of course, I'm going to have to get hypnosis to get the theme tune extracted from my mind. What did you eat this week? Uh, yeah, shout out. James Cavanaugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, righty. James is does things so lovely doesn't yeah, he like that's brilliant i don't he just makes things fun and nice and lovely and just a, a podcast about eating like stunning yeah i think it's because he approaches things with such like honesty as well it's like and clarity around things i really admire him for that hmm <laughs> you're just like what's your book of the week okay sorry <laughs> now it's time for book of the week Okay, my book of the week this week is called Enough, The Violence Against Women and How to End It by Harriet Johnson. Obviously, that sounds super grim, but it's actually a very, very instructive, clear book written by this barrister about um, all of the laws that do women dirty and policing and all that kind of stuff. And it's uh, really good, really good read. I have a review of it in The Times this weekend, I think, maybe. Um, yeah, Enough, it's called. All right, this podcast produced by Andrew Mang and Crystal Clear gives us Tune Chicken Roll for a soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. Kade on Tune Chicken Roll and Shacht and Shaw. Ahandrea. Tasha, Closer to Julie by Stephanie Pumpunyak. It is a song from uh, Hotel Cost, uh, their seminal collection of lounge songs for the hotel. And I was just listening. They're so good for, like, just listening to that's mad isn't it music um but this song is a total bop and uh, a really good holiday song that i listen to all the time nobody probably knew i was in lanzarote last week um so yes this was the song of the holiday i've been in malali i've been andrew horan this has been united ireland and that was the assembly election special big picture <laughs> <laughs>